It's been a while. Last time I was supposed to preach, I got sick. So um, I'm very happy to be here this evening. And welcome to all of you who are watching from home, too. Uh, we're, happy, we're happy to know you're there. All right, a couple of weeks ago, uh, actually it was shortly after I received this preaching assignment, my boys and I had an early appointment I don't know, Lacey, somewhere else. And so we were leaving in a rush. We were, we were kind of riding that edge of on time and late. Anybody else ride that edge ever? Chuckles. Um, and tensions in my car were a little bit high. So we turned out of our neighborhood onto Cooper Point Road. I just had time to get up to full speed when I had to slow down again, because right in front of us was some kind of service truck, service van, I don't remember what, and it was going 10 miles per hour under the speed limit. And if you um, aren't familiar with the area, Cooper Point Road is on the Cooper Point Peninsula, and for like the last three, four miles, it's the only road in and out. And so I was stuck going slow unless I had an opportunity to pass, which of course I looked for and there was nothing. Um, cars were coming in either direction. But as we were going around a corner, we slowed to a stop. And right in front of that service van, I kid you not, was a garbage truck. So I was right behind a service van that was already going 10 miles per hour under the speed limit, and then we got behind a garbage truck that was going to stop at every single driveway to empty the garbage. And I know you guys can feel this with me, like my blood pressure was rising, I was gripping the steering wheel, I was impatient, I was stressed out thinking, how am I going to pass two of these? When... My son is right there. I appeal to him for my veracity. We landed behind a school bus. So we were behind a school bus that was going to stop, which was behind a garbage truck that was going to stop at every driveway, behind a service van that was already going 10 miles per hour underneath the speed limit. And at that point, I just laughed. Right, you've got to give in. It was funny at that point. And it kind of turned into a game because we were approaching this intersection where there's a road that I could actually take, Evergreen Parkway, to bypass all of Westside Olympia and loop around. Um, and I told my kids, like, well, if, if all three of them go straight down Cooper Point, I'm going to turn. If two of them turn, I'm going straight. You know, we were all waiting to see what would happen. And we were laughing and joking about it at that time. Well, sure enough, we got to the intersection and the school bus went straight because that's where the schools are. And then the garbage truck turned. Intrigue. So I was gripping the steering wheel. I had my fingers out ready to flip the, the turn signal if I needed to. And I did need to because the service van went straight and I immediately took a right turn to bypass Westside Olympia. And then you guys, praise God from whom all blessings flow, that garbage truck actually turned immediately into a neighborhood and I was free. And you would think that I would have been like rejoicing in that freedom and celebrating and laughing, laughing, but instead that stress settled right back on me and I thought, oh, maybe we can still be on time. And I'm not ashamed to lie that I sped. <laughs> I'm not ashamed to tell the truth 
and that I sped down Evergreen Parkway. And I think we can all relate to this, right? Living on that edge with no margin when something interrupts your day, something interrupts your time, your train of thought, your blood pressure rises, frustration just hits you. It's a common human experience. Well, will you open your Bibles with me? I'll have it here on the screen too, to Galatians 5, 22 through 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And we've been going through these fruit one by one over the last several weeks. Today, we're landing on patience. And if we're reading slowly, patience is the point in this list where our hearts drop a little bit, right? Love is great. Joy, peace, patience. Because there's something in us that knows that in order for us to be patient, there needs to be something that we need to be patient for. Amen? <laughs> Actually, this, this definition is straight from the dictionary, and it made me laugh a little bit just because of how much it hit home. Patience is the bearing of provocation, annoyance, misfortune, or pain without complaint, loss of temper, irritation, or the like. It's also an ability or willingness to suppress restlessness or annoyance when confronted with delay. And it doesn't take much reflection to realize that we are a impatient, restless, and annoyed people as a whole. Not all of us, but as a whole, we are. Impatience is actually one of our culture's dominant characteristics. The more I've thought about it, the more I'm seeing examples of impatience and urges to be impatient in our culture. It's often a sign of importance or, or self-importance. I have places to be, things to do. It's a result of how busy we are, how busy we're told we need to be. We need to have a successful career, a healthy family, eat well, <laughs> exercise, maintain relationships, be active in our community, be up to date on current events and have opinions about them. If you're a member of a church, the ideal is that you would make time to have quiet time with the Lord, right? Serve at the church, M maintain relationships within the body, serve. And the list goes on, right? If you have kids, that's another list. If you care about the environment, that's another list. And then there are all the shows we have to watch. There's so much to do and everything is urgent and you don't have time to catch your breath, let alone <laughs> take time to patiently bear any provocation, annoyance, misfortune, or pain. In fact, we'd often rather just rush through it and then let our blood pressure lower at the end of the day with a TV show. Impatience is so prevalent in our culture, like I said, that I've, had, I've, I've struggled how to put in words how prevalent it is. It permeates nearly every facet of our society, how we drive, how we eat, how we shop, how we do business, how we worship, how we entertain ourselves, how we learn, how we sleep, how we vote, how we think, 
I'm sure I missed things. We live in a culture dominated by instant gratification, so much so that impatience is actually the norm. And really patient people stand out. Do you know any of them? They're a calming, restful influence. They, they look us in the eye. They notice the beauty around us. They, they seem to think more clearly when they talk to you. They really listen to your responses. I think of, of teachers of young children who calmly help them practice their reading or their piano scales. I think of animal trainers who are willing to, to guide a horse or a dog to rehearse the exact same motions over and over until the animal understands the expectations. I think of nurses or home health workers who patiently attend disgruntled or, or immobile patients, even when they're exhausted themselves or their work goes unappreciated. I think of Cliff, he was a volunteer with the VA who would sit with my dad for two hours of a, at a time and listen to my dad talk about airplanes. And Cliff, Cliff was an environmental biologist. He didn't care about airplanes. But he cared about my dad, and so he would sit and listen. Really patient people are here around us and among us, and a lot of them are in this room. A lot of them are down with our kids right now. And some of us are patient by nature. Some of us are patient through experience. Some of us by the miraculous work of the Spirit. And I think all of us are growing in it. But, but what is the process of being formed into people who are patient? I think our society is really recognizing this need. Um, there are myriads of resources available now to counteract the business the businesses that, that produce impatience, right? They're mindfulness practices, breathing exercises, ways to manage anxiety, methods of learning to be present, and those are so good. Um, but I'm gonna leave those to the counselors and psychologists and yoga instructors, because my job here today is to talk about the patience that God grows in his people from the inside out. He'll grow a patience that is a result of his love lavished upon us so that we can love those around us. There's a patience that's a result of the enduring joy that we have in the Lord, no matter our circumstance. There's a patience that's a result of the peace, peace that passes all understanding. And when we're at peace, we can be peaceful people Patience for the believer is the result of the Spirit's work in our hearts, and it's not an isolated virtue that we need to add to a checklist, kind of like taking our vitamins, you know? Take vitamins, remember to be patient. That's not for us. And remember our garden analogy. God is the gardener. We can't force anything to grow in ourselves. I can tend the soil. I can water the seed, but only God is going to grow the fruit. All right. There is a wry saying that I've been hearing since I was a child in the church, and I think a lot of you have heard it too. Finish it for me. Don't pray for patience. 
Why? Yeah, because God will give you something to be patient for. Have you guys heard that? The Lord will put you into situations and around people where you're going to need patience, so you'll have to practice patience. And maybe you're, you're new to the church and have never heard that, but it's been around. And I want to say right off, if you said that joke, no shame, because it's funny, and it's kind of funny because it's true, right? It shows what I'm talking about, that we, we dread this fruit of patience in our lives because of what it means will happen to us. Um, it acknowledges that patience relies on these external provocations, annoyances, misfortunes, or pain. But it also says something about our view of God. If I notice I'm impatient while driving, and I pray for patience, do I fear that God is going to orchestrate some construction on Cooper Point Road so that every time I leave my neighborhood, I will have to endure construction traffic? Is that my fear? Or is it your fear that if there's an annoying coworker and you pray for patience, that, that the Lord will assign you a project together? And so your choices are either going to be to learn patience or lose your job or something. I don't know. Is that our fear? So I'm going to take something that I realize is meant to be funny today, and I'm going to dissect it a little bit, which I know you're never supposed to do with a joke. But I know also that the best jokes are funny because they have truth in them. And I want to get to that truth, to our beliefs. Because don't pray for patience because the Lord will put you in situations where you need it. Could also be said as don't ask God for what you need because he's going to make your life harder until he sees that fruit in your life. And I'm not sure I can get behind that statement. So I think it'd be wise for us to ask a couple of simple questions to see what we really believe about God and patience and find the truth. Nick, will you put them up? They're two really simple questions. What do we believe about trials? Where do they come from? And what do we believe about the character of God? Number one, what do we believe about trials? Where do these provocations, trials, misfortunes, and pain that would cause us as followers of Christ to grow in patience come from? Well, traditionally in Christianity, we recognize three sources for temptations. Our flesh, the world, and the devil. And I want to look at these quickly. So the flesh... I want to define as any unsanctified part of our own being, our needs and our desires that have not yet been aligned to those of Christ. The truth is we're not all bad. We're made in the image of God. We're fallen. And now those of us who belong to Christ are being formed back into the image of Christ. So there's kind of a jumble of desires and intentions inside us. Will you put up the quote? John Mark Comer says in his book, Live No Lies, not all desires are created equal, or at least not all are equally beneficial. Some of our desires are higher or nobler and lead to life and freedom and peace, and others are lower or more animalistic and lead to death and slavery and fear. And those desires inside us that lead to death, slavery, and fear, those are going to be the ones that bring trials into our life, right? of our own making, our own, our own heart's desires. 
And this actually goes along with the verses right before the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5. The Apostle Paul wrote, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. We want to be patient people. We want to be those people that bring peace when we walk in the room. But our desires of the flesh, (laughs) the desires of our flesh will provoke us to become impatient. And one of the things I've noticed that I get most impatient with is myself, right? We get frustrated with our own habits, our own tendencies, our failures, and constantly need to be reminded by the Holy Spirit that we are just human, and he's got us. We have access to God's grace and to God's mercy. At every moment, the Lord offers us patience with ourselves. So our flesh causes us to lose patience. So too does, and more obviously does, the world. Amen? There are elements of the world that are annoying and cause us to lose patience, traffic, slow internet, other people. This is a call for instant gratification. But there are also numerous lies that the the world tells us. Believing in these lies will also result in the kinds of trials that cause impatience. One particular dominant one in our culture is the message that you can fix it all. You have the responsibility to fix it all. Kate Bowler, professor at Duke Divinity School, was diagnosed with stage four cancer when she was 35. She writes frequently about one of the great lies of our culture, this lie of self-help. Every year, billions of dollars are pumped into a wellness industry defined by the theory that we can be perfected. We can organize ourselves heal ourselves, budget ourselves, love ourselves, track ourselves, and eat well enough to make ourselves whole. But I cannot outwork or outpace or outpray my cancer. I can't dispel it with a can-do attitude. After a diagnosis, after a pandemic, this is the right time to question our popular theories about how to build a better life. We cannot have it all if we just learn how to conquer our limits. Infinity isn't at the bottom of your inbox or in the next level of the peloton. Now, there is a lot we can do to tend our soil. There are habits that we can develop, and there are practices that will benefit us. But if we believe the lie that we can fix ourselves, that being busy or doing more is going to result in a more whole person, the result's going to be impatience. Another common lie in American culture is the great lie of politics. Right? All you have to do is wake up in, a, wake up in the morning, open your eyes, and see that lie everywhere. But I think, and I think a lot of us want to forget the whole thing and ignore the news, but ignoring it doesn't seem to make the tension go away either. That is another lie that politics will fix it, and that ignoring politics will fix things. Because many of our friends and family members are clinging to politics. Families are divided, churches are divided, and we don't have the patience, often, to have a conversation with someone who believes differently than we do, let alone love them. And if the church can get this right, if the church can learn to sit with people who disagree and have conversation, 
Imagine our impact. That would set us apart so distinctly and point people to Christ. Politics won't fix the answer or won't fix the problem. Ignoring it won't fix the problem. But another thing, um, activism. Activism is important and essential, and we as believers need to be engaged. And for those of us who are naturally more fiery than others, I don't want to equate patience with inaction and impatience with action. You can be a patient person and an active person. You can protest injustice and work to rectify it, advocate for the vulnerable, fight for the right, while still living a life full of patience. In fact, we'll be better advocates and better prepared to fight injustice if we live lives full of patience. I'm really just starting to learn this on a systemic level and understand how it, how it happens. This week, I listened again to an interview with the Reverend Dr. Gardner C. Taylor. He was an African-American minister throughout the civil rights era. And he was on Charlie Rose right after 9-11. So this was an old interview. Drawing on his considerable experience pastoring in the face of abuse and injustice, Dr. Taylor urged the people of the United States to have patience after the 9-11 attacks, not because we did not need to act, but because patience would lead to righteous action rather than base retaliation. I wish I had a quote for you, but ironically, the interviewer kept interrupting him, and so there were no neat quotes to pull out. It must be possible to stand up to abuse while cultivating the fruits of the Spirit. It is possible to live with more love and joy and peace and patience while fighting injustice. People like Gardner C. Taylor have shown us the way. God the Father showed us the way, and Christ shows us the way. So our flesh causes plenty of inconveniences and desires that lead to impatience. The world tells us lies and draws us into situations that cause impatience. And finally, the devil, Satan, is a cause of temptations and trials. And we don't actually, we don't talk much about Satan, the tempter. We talk even less about demons and demonic powers. But I believe wholeheartedly that recognizing this enemy is essential in a discussion about patience. As a human, I'm going to forever be tempted to look at other humans as my real enemy, as the real problem. I'm going to forever be tempted to look at systems as the real problem. But scripture is very clear, the real source of the problem. Uh, look at Ephesians 6. Do you have that one in there? Nope. Put on the full, it's a common verse, we probably know it. Put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against what? Flesh and blood. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, the powers of the dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And this truth is going to make us different. When we're not fighting against individual people, when we're not fighting against individual systems, but when we fight with prayer and wisdom and discernment, we can be patient with the people in our lives. We can be patient waiting for God coming 
to come and rescue and redeem because we see the real picture. So if we understand that most of our trials, the provocations, annoyances, misfortunes and pains are coming from our own flesh, the world around us, and the spiritual realm, we can go to God asking him as, as the source of what is good for what we need. If we need patience, we can ask him. But this leads us to question number two. What do we believe about God? What, what about the rest of the Bible? Doesn't God rain judgment down on his people? Doesn't he bring hard times to refine them into the people he wants them to be? Aren't some of these struggles in my life God's fault? Is God so committed to our character that he's going to put annoying people in our way? Garbage trucks in our path. Put us on hold for hours so that we can learn patience. But what about the bigger things? Job loss, illness, natural disasters. Would God bring about those things to refine his people? And the answer is maybe. I don't know. I'm really reluctant to say yes or no to that because God is God and he will do what he wills. I, can't, I don't want to say what he will and won't do, but I'm very confident in his character. I want to show you what I see in scripture. We got to do, I want to do a brief overview of the two covenants, the two major covenants that God made with the people of Israel. When God res rescued the nation of Israel out of the land of Egypt, he made a covenant with them. The Israelite nation at that time was made up of most likely illiterate, enslaved, oppressed, terrified people. They did not know God. So God showed them his great power when he rescued them from the Egyptians, and then he made a promise to them. Look at Deuteronomy 28. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city. Blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. God cares about the details. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. And if you keep reading, it goes on and on. If they worshipped God alone, every aspect of their lives would be blessed. Their communities would thrive. The work of their hands would be productive. Their children would be blessed. They would have plenty to eat. Every aspect of their lives would be flourishing. But forsaking the Lord meant severe consequences. Next slide. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all of his commandments and statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. 
Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. It's harsh. Under the old covenant, there was a simple, but not easy, system of blessing and curse. Do well, obey God, follow his ways, and you would be blessed, but turn away from God, forsake his law, worship other gods, and you would be cursed. It's a super imperfect analogy, but I think of it often, actually, when parenting. Because when my boys were little, they didn't know the ways of our family. They didn't know the ways of our society. And so I set up some similar parameters to help them along. Right? We, work, we don't lie in this family. We work together to make our home tidy and beautiful. You must listen to me, and you must obey the first time. And if they didn't obey my commandments, there would be consequences. But if they followed their commands, there would be blessings. Our house would abound in ice cream. Relationships flourish, right? Plenty of time to play, increased trust. And similarly, I think God made a concrete covenant with his people. I know I'm oversimplifying, but it's helped me understand. He made this covenant to teach them about him and his ways, his love of the people, his love of the poor and the downtrodden, his care of the earth, his priorities of rest. And there were consequences for breaking it, and they did break it. That covenant is no more. God, of course, kept his side, but the people did not. They were, con- they were tempted by those conflicting desires inside them. They were tempted by the tribes and the nations that surrounded them. They were tempted by other gods, and they gave in to that temptation. And it didn't change God's love for them. And it certainly didn't stop God from pursuing them. God begged them to return. Over and over, he sent prophets to their kings. He sent prophets to the people, reminding them of his promises before he got to the point of discipline. Guys, we serve a God whose patience endures hundreds and hundreds of years. Even when the Israelites broke their covenant, he didn't abandon them. In his infinite patience, he built a new covenant. God himself, Jesus, came to set up a new system. This is from Hebrews, um, Hebrews 8, and I love it in the message. But Jesus' priestly work far surpasses what those other priests do, since he's working from a far better plan. If the first plan, the old covenant, had worked out, a second wouldn't have been needed. But we know the first was found wanting because God said, heads up. The days are coming when I'll set up a new plan for dealing with Judah and Israel. I'll throw out the old plan I set up with their ancestors when I led them out by by the hand out of Egypt. They didn't keep their part of their bargain, so I looked away and let it go. This new plan I'm making with Israel isn't going to be written on paper, isn't going to be chiseled in stone. This time I'm writing out the plan in them, carving it in the lining of their hearts. I'll be their God and they'll be my people. They won't go to school to learn about me or buy a book called God in Five Easy Lessons. They'll get to know me firsthand, the little, the big, the small and great. They'll get to know me by being kindly forgiven. 
with the slate of their sins forever wiped clean. By coming up with a new plan, a new covenant between God and his people, God put the old plan on the shelf, and there it stays, gathering dust. The blessings of God were not enough to lure people away from sin. His gifts were not enough for them to overcome the flesh, the world, and the devil. The threat of punishment was not enough to keep people from sin. We needed a new way. So Christ came, and he demonstrated the great love of God in his life and in his death. He abolished the old covenant where blessing and curse were determined by human actions. And he did it by taking the curse upon himself. Hear the good news. Anyone who has faith in Christ is made righteous, and there is no punishment for you. There is no need for God to punish you. The old covenant is gone. If you are enduring trials, you are not cursed, and you are not being punished. You don't have to fear asking God for what you need any more than a child fears asking his mother for a drink of water. If you need patience to get through your workday or your commute, your diagnosis, your, the mon monotony of your days, your financial struggles, anything else, ask. Ask your good father and keep on asking. And he doesn't always remove the trials, and we don't know why. I think we actually need a real adjustment. I mean, I think most of us in here are white and middle class and kind of used to the prosperous times our country had for a while. But we are not in the Garden of Eden, and we are not in the new earth. And if we look globally, if we look historically, our baseline expectation for our experience on earth should be hardship. Guys, our world is hard, and we have no promise of an easy life whether we follow Christ or not. Unlike the Israelites, we don't have the promise that if we do good, we'll prosper. That storyline didn't work. An easy life didn't make them more apt to follow God and bring his kingdom to earth. We're too frail. We're too easily swayed by the desires of our flesh, the lies of the world, and the deceptions of the devil. But now, God empowers us by the fruit of his spirit to make us resilient and effective. I'm coming to a close, but there's one more idea I want to leave with you before we go and eat. I recently read the book, The Stature of Waiting by W.H. Vanstone. In it, the author pointed out something really poignant. If you flip, read through the Gospel of Mark, Jesus appears to us to be immensely active. Mark uses the word immediately, constantly. And most of the sentence structures are framed about, around Jesus actually, actively doing something. I mean, just here are examples from two open pages on my Bible. He entered Capernaum. He began to teach. Jesus rebuked. He was going. He departed. He warned. He touched. Jesus realized. He healed. He crossed over. But then the tone changes. After the Last Supper and after Jesus' betrayal, the tone of the book changes, and so does his sentence structure. Now, look at this. They led Jesus away. The high priest questioned Jesus. They condemned him. They dressed him. They spit on him. 
the chief priests handed him over to Pilate. They brought Jesus. They crucified him. And even when Jesus is the subject of the sentence, even when he's active, look at that, it's still passive. He said nothing. He was silent. Jesus moves from being the active one, the one who is doing and moving and healing and touching and warning, to being the passive participant. Now he's being led. He's being handed over. He's being questioned. He's being beaten and crucified. And Mark uses the sentence structure to convey something the other gospel writers convey in other ways. That's this, that Jesus surrendered himself to the will of the Father. He gave up his power. He gave up his initiative. And he let what needed to happen take place. This is what we call the passion of the Christ. And it has value for us, not only because that passivity is what was used to redeem us and reunite us to himself, but also because it dignifies those moments in our life when we can no longer take control, when we must be passive, when we must be patient. This is one last long quote, but I wanted to share it with you. So the passion, remember read passivity in this case, of Jesus connects not simply or even primarily with the human experience of pain. It connects with every experience of passing suddenly or gradually into a more dependent phase or area of life with going into hospital with retiring or losing one's job or having to wait upon the actions of other people and other factors beyond one's control. If the thought of the passion of Jesus is helpful at all, then it may be helpful not only to the person who's bearing the cross of pain, but also to the person who feels that he's on the sidelines, that he's become useless or ineffective, that he's no longer making his mark in the world or his contribution to it. Such a person may well find comfort in the thought that a similar pattern appears in the life of Jesus, that he also passed from activity and work and achievement into a final phase of waiting and dependence and passion. We can't escape those things that derail our lives. There will always be moments when we'll be out of control, when we have to move from activity to passivity, and it will be frustrating because we're living in a culture that values activity and momentum and initiative. But the way of the kingdom is to trust the Father just as Jesus did, to believe that these trials are only temporary and to cling to our Father, unafraid to ask for help when we need it. He will grow patience in our lives. Please, I urge you, don't be afraid to ask it of him. Will you pray with me? Lord, as we follow the path of Christ, I pray that you would ignite this power of the Holy Spirit in us. God, give us access to this glorious patience that will make us resilient 
that will give us further confidence in you, that you are the one ultimately in control. The patience that will give us rest, knowing that even when we don't have enough, when we can't be active, you are at work. Thank you for being a God that we can trust. May our trust grow ever stronger. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.